That is, that is a tremendous question in that song. How can we reach the world God has called us to reach if we don't have a burden, if we don't have a concern enough to have an outreach and a testimony? Excellent. Well, uh, tonight is our final message in the revival service. My prayer is that tonight will be not the end of our revival time, though, that God will you know, affirm some things in us and allow that some things with that can from today move forward and perhaps give us some things that would chip away uh, or, or maybe even break the stony heart that's in us to make a decision that would be a life-changing decision. I, I don't think we know, I don't think we can know how close some might be to that. Um, you know, perhaps somebody's this close to being saved. Or maybe somebody's this close to surrendering their heart to God or their life to God. And uh, it's my prayer that, that we would have that tonight, um, where somebody would, would, would be touched of the Lord tonight and have God work, that God would work in you, you would know what He wants you to do, and then you would let Him t- to have His way in you. Um, that's my hope tonight. We'll be finishing the book of Ezra tonight. So take, ter- I'm sorry, turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 9, and when you find that, stand with me. Ezra chapter 9. I do want to say thank you, Pastor, for the invitation. And thank you, church family, for allowing me to be here to deliver the messages. We're going to be, we're going to be reading in chapter 9. Let's start in verse number 1. And we'll read all the way through verse from verse 1 all the way through verse number 8. The Bible says, Now, when these things were done, the prince came to me saying, the princes rather, came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. So they are in Israel. They've been given the privilege to worship again because the temple has been rebuilt. And now they've not, they've decided, Israel has decided not to separate themselves from the people of the land. It goes on, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and, um, the Ammonites. And then the last one is the Amorites. Okay, so verse number two. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, uh, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands, yea, the land of people of those lands. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, this is Ezra, reflecting on this report he just heard, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the word of God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And Ezra says, I sat astonished until the evening service. So he received a report that Israel joined themselves to the people of the land after having been revived. And Ezra is in shock about this. It says that he stands astonished in, he's speechless. He's, he's wondering, how could we have done this? He goes on, verse five. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose, this is Ezra, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees. By the way, that's a good place to go when you're in that position. Right to your knees. Do you know the only reason you wouldn't go to your knees when this is the circumstance? If you don't understand how serious what you've done is. That's the only reason you wouldn't go to your knees in this context. Because you don't realize how serious this is. So he goes to his knees. He spread out, he, the Bible says, and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. 
In other words, I, I turn myself over to your mercy, to your judgment, to your mercy. Verse 6. And then he prayed and said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. Do you know what he didn't say? Lord, there's a good reason for this. Lord, we messed up, but I have good excuses. He didn't bring any of that to the table. He lifted his hand, he spread his hands, and he said, Lord, I'm ashamed. I, there's nothing I can say. He goes on. Uh, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses, trespasses grown up in, unto the heavens. Since the day of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day and for our iniquities have we our kings and our priests been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to, and, to the, and to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. So Ezra is reflecting on the condition of Israel before God brought revival. You know why Israel's condition was before God brought revival? It was bondage. It was, it was captivity. And he's reflecting on what it used to be. Now verse 8. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord, our God. While we were in captivity, while we were um, in our sin and the judgment and the consequence, here's what you did for us, God. In those times, undeserving, you poured grace out on us. He goes on to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in this in his holy place that our god may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage he's saying this god you revived us you brought revival now jump to verse 13 and after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that Thou art our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this. I think here's what we can, ref we can identify with, <laughs> with Israel in this instance. That God has given us, as far as punishment and judgment, far less than we deserve. Whether we acknowledge that or not. But for Ezra, he's acknowledging it. Now it gets exciting. I'm not going to read a whole lot more, but look at chapter 10. Verse 1. Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, look at these next words. There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children for the people, say that next word, for the people what? Wept very sore. Do you know what they had? Conviction. They were convicted. And that's just what they needed to have. I want to tell you tonight, I believe that God has something for us tonight that will set us on a path to maintain what He wants to do in us tonight so that He'll continue to maintain that in us and we'll avoid some of the judgments that, that we will put ourselves in a position to experience if we'll, if we'll confess ourselves to the Lord in this, in this way. If we'll, as Israel, allow our hearts to be convicted. Father, I pray Your help tonight. We need You. Without You, we can do nothing. And in Your strength and with Your power, God, the, Satan has no power. He has no bondage. There's freedom in you. And so I pray that the message would strike to the soul of those who need to hear from you. We'll give you glory for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now listen, revival isn't an emotion. Revival isn't a feeling. It's not, um, you know, where we come to church and we feel like we're being, you know, blessed and encouraged and uh, we are being, in a sense, entertained. Revival is when God speaks to you and you listen to the voice of God. He convicts you, He stirs you, and then you let Him change you. A reviving is what God desires to do. But we have to let Him speak to us. 
When I was a kid, I was a bus kid. I, I, I didn't go to church. My dad didn't go to church. My mom went to church, but they divorced when I was little. And so a lady knocked on our door when I was in third grade. My stepmom opened the door and said, can I help you? And she said, my name's Donna Kosher. I drive, we drive the bus through here for, uh, for Southwest Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. And we wonder if you have any kids that would like to ride the bus to church. My stepmom said, yes. We have four, and it was myself being in third grade, my older sister, and then my two younger brothers. That was on Saturday. We went to church for the first time on the bus on Sunday the next day. And so from third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and in sixth grade, for all those years, I'm attending church, uh, riding the church bus. I didn't exactly have a great attitude. You know, I wasn't the rowdy kid who, you know, took his pocket knife and cut the back seats or something in the bus. I didn't do that, but I, I wasn't too excited to be there either. I was the kid that got on the bus, walked straight to the back seat, put my jacket up over my head, and then I zipped it up. And I just stayed like that until we got to church. I mean, I just, I just had no real interest. And I didn't pay good attention either. In fact, it was a mission for me uh, through the years from third to sixth grade when I was at church to see what I could steal. I mean, if there was candy, say goodbye to the candy. It's going in the pocket, you know. I could have pockets that are puffed out this big with, you know, it didn't even matter what kind of candy it was. I, I mean, I'm just going for it. I would walk around the classrooms and I would try to, if no one's watching, I'd try to go into Sunday school classes and all the doors would be locked. You know, and so this was my adventure when I went to church. There were times when I enjoyed the puppet shows or, you know, the puppet skits or certain kinds of things, but I didn't pay good attention to the gospel. Then when I was in sixth grade, I went out of the class I was supposed to be in and I snuck into the youth class. I wasn't supposed to be in there yet, but when there's 600 bus kids, you have a way of sneaking around. And I, you know, had a way of doing that. So I came into youth class. I just want to see what it's like. I mean, other kids, the big kids are in here. Maybe it's better than the other class. So I sneak in and there's like 300 teens in here and I'm sitting on the back row way on this side. And I'll never forget while sitting in there thinking, wow, this is kind of boring. But then the preacher started to preach and he started to his topic. I don't even remember the passage. There's not a lot I remembered about this sermon, but I remember two things. I remember, number one, he talked about sins and he didn't have to talk about sins very long before I was convinced, whoa, I fit into that category. I, I had through the years I had stolen so many things. And it didn't even matter who it was. It could have been friends. It could be family. And I did all of that. And so he's preaching about sins. But then he starts preaching about hell. And when he started talking about the consequences of sins, it wasn't an intellectual, uh, you know, it wasn't some kind of an intellectual thing that was happening in me. Well, I wonder if hell's real, or I wonder if this is true. None of that was happening in me. Immediately, I knew that I was destined for it, and I got convicted in my soul. In fact, it was deep conviction, because I knew that I deserved it. So then he got to the end of the sermon, and he said, every head bowed and every eye closed. Well, I bowed my head and I closed my eyes because I thought that's what everybody did. And I found out when you're in a class with other teenagers, not everybody closes your eyes and bows your head. Anyway, I bowed my head, I closed my eyes, and the preacher said, if you don't know if you're saved, then you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you or something like that. So he made, he asked that question, my head's bowed, I'm thinking nobody's looking, right? So I raise my hand really high. Next thing I know, some guy puts his arm on my shoulder from behind. It scared me to death. I like almost had a heart attack. What is happening right now, you know? He said, would you like to go into another room and visit with me about this question? I said, okay. So we went out of the room where the message was to the Sunday school hall's hallway and he opened one of the doors and I thought that door was locked earlier you know anyway so we went into this room and we he began to speak to me about the gospel now having memorized the scripture and went to bible college and knowing all the scripture 
that are, that's related to the gospel, likely the Romans road. I knew he's going through this with me, but it's like I'm being teleported into this room and my my everything about me in this moment is sort of a cloud. And so when we got to the point where it was time to pray and ask the Lord to save me, he led me through the sinner's prayer and I repeated after him. But all note, this is happening in me all the time I'm praying I know that this isn't happening in my heart. Like in that moment, I know, I know that I'm just saying these words. I'm not really praying and I knew it. I didn't even need to go to theology class to know that I was just saying words I wasn't praying. So when we were through praying, he looked at me and said I'd just gotten saved. But in my heart, I I knew that I didn't because what we were just doing was between you and me. I wasn't talking to the Lord. So I said, thank you. And then I went home and I could not sleep that night. I was up all night long just tossing in my bed because I thought, man, you know, he showed me how to do that. But I know I'm a 100% sure that that prayer, I wasn't actually praying. I was just saying those words. And it stirred me. It really bothered me because I was under conviction. And it was like two nights. Plus, I had watched all of these bad movies. And even as a young child, I was allowed to watch these movies. So I was thinking I had watched recently a movie about houses burning down. And I was absolutely convinced that my house was going to burn down and I was going to go to hell. I slept with my shoes on. I just was afraid. And finally, after just a couple of nights of that, laying in my bed at home in Oklahoma City, I remembered, I'll never forget the night, where I'm laying on my back in the bed, and I cannot sleep, and I finally look to heaven, and I begin to pray. I don't recall the words. I couldn't articulate the words that I prayed. But I do remember that I asked the Lord to save me and to forgive me. And in that instance, I also will never forget that I reached up because my alarm clock was on my dresser, which was right beside my bed. And I changed my alarm clock setting from the rock and roll station that it was on to the sound that we all know and love. I changed my alarm to that sound away from the rock and roll music. I don't know other than the work of God in me why I did that. So God is stirring and working in me. He's convicting me and drawing me to himself. When I was under conviction of my sins, I didn't need somebody to intellectually convince me that my sins were a serious problem. I knew that my sins were a serious problem. And so what we need is God to work in us through the the message of His Word, the message of the Gospel, the, the message of the Word of God through the man of God. We need to hear from God to convict our soul, to, to touch us, to speak to us in relationship to our sins. Why? Because he'll, he'll, he'll speak to us and convince us through conviction that our sins are a serious problem. Israel, as a community, had been established in Israel through the building of the temple and they were able to be revived in their worship. What a blessing from God. Ezra, as a leader in this nation, as they're establishing a routine with worship and as a nation, he puts princes in charge of of monitoring the governance of the people of the land. The leaders and the princes then would report to Ezra the dealings of the people. And that's what happened in verse number one. Take a look at it. It says this, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. That was what the report of the princes gave to Ezra. We're in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, It says, now after these things were done, the princes came. These are the ones bringing the report saying, and here's what they said. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to the abominations. So the people had joined themselves to the people of the land. Now this isn't 
just a racial issue where we would say, you know, we don't want to mix the races. That's not the ultimate issue here. The issue is a religious issue. What they had done is they had embraced not only the people of the land, but they had embraced the abominations of the people of the land. So they were mixing themselves in a religious sense to the pagans of the land. This is a sin. This is a sin that would soon remove God's hand from the nation of Israel. Now let's not forget, all the way up to chapter, the end of chapter 8, Israel had God's hand on them. They were being revived. They were being blessed. They were being brought into the land. And by the way, they didn't even deserve any of that. God was blessing them and He had His, he had his hand on them. And now they're going back to a path of destruction. After having experienced such great blessings, they're going back to a path of destruction. And honestly, it reminds me of what happens to many Christians after they do like I did on that night. And you are convicted and you know you're a sinner and you know you deserve to be separated from God in the lake of fire for all of eternity. You deserve that. But God has revealed His mercy to you and His grace. He's given you an opportunity at salvation and you turn your heart into to Him in salvation and He saves your soul. But then we so quickly turn our hearts back to the ways of this world. We so easily and quickly turn ourselves, embrace the pagan practices of this world. And what happens is God's hand that was on us and God's hand that He desires to place on us so that He would bless us and bring the fruits of the Spirit into our lives. He begins to pull His hand away. And Israel set themselves on a path of destruction. And here's the point of it. They could either take that seriously or they could take it as the, it's not a serious thing. But it was true that God's hand was going to be removed. And it was true that they were on a path of destruction. They just had to take it seriously. And Ezra sure took it seriously. Look at verse 3. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment. And my mantle plucked off the hair of my head. That sounds painful, right? He pulled the hair out of his head and out of his beard. It says that he sat astonished. Verse 4 in the middle of that verse, I sat astonished. I mean, two times it says that he was in shock. He couldn't believe his eyes. He couldn't believe his ears. And he was burdened. He was struck with this. Why? Why does it matter so much to him? Because he saw the blessing of God, the revival of God. He saw what God did in people. And he saw how quickly they went back. And he knew, he forecasted where it was going to take them. This is going to destroy us. Broken. So note that he fell on his knees. He cried out to God in prayer. He did this in the sight of the congregation. Look at verse 5. In the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and mantle, I fell on my knees. He spread out my hands to the Lord my God. By the way, if you, if you know of somebody, listen to this, if you know of somebody who has been saved, or perhaps, let's just start here, you know of somebody who needs to be saved. Here's what God has revealed to us as His, as His followers, as believers, people who are saved. Do you know what God has revealed to us? the reality of heaven and hell and the reality of the judgment of God to those who are lost. It ought to burden us when people are lost. It ought to burden us when we know people and we love people and they're lost and they're undone and they're on their way to hell. We ought to have a heart like this where at least sometimes we're so concerned about people who are lost that we would find ourselves spreading our arms out to God and saying, God, I have a loved one who has, who is on, who's on a path towards destruction. And my heart is burdened. I've ripped my mantle. But this is a man who is burdened for a people who've been redeemed and revived and given great opportunity. This is the heart of a pastor for his people who have been saved. Perhaps you won them to the Lord and you brought them through discipleship and you saw them with a kind of fire, but then you also saw them begin to walk away. You saw them also begin to embrace the pagan uh, practices of this society. 
and, and go away from the truth and away from the ways of God. And here's what we see. Not that we're prophets. Not that we're men who can forecast the in the sense that we can see or guarantee things that happen in the future. But we know the scriptures and we know what God's taught us. And we can see that if somebody's walked away from God, that God will remove his hand and that will, you're, you're destined for a path of destruction. And it ought to break our heart. By the way, not just the pastor, but all of us. It ought to break our heart. It goes on in verse number 6. It says, and said, oh my God, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. He understood the guilt of his people. He made no excuses for the sins. He understood this. We made this decision. Uh, we deserve the judgment of it. We deserve what... what what judgment comes our way. We're not making any excuses. We deserve it. Look what he said in verse 8. And now for a little space, grace has been shown uh, from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. God has been so good to us. God has been so good to us. In His grace, in His mercy, He goes on to give us a nail in the holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage when we didn't deserve it. God revived us. Look at verse 10, and now, uh, O oh our God, look at verse 10, follow this. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? You know what he's saying right there? As he's admitting the, un he, as he's acknowledging that it's unthinkable what we've done, that he's acknowledging that it's, 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 God has been so good to extend his mercy to us and grace and bring a reviving to our soul that we would so quickly turn our hearts back to the pagan ways of this world. Here's what he says in verse number 10 when he said this, what shall we say after this? He says, I don't even know what to say about this. I mean, we have no excuse. We're in our sins. We deserve to be destroyed. But I, I have no words to, Say, have you ever been that way where you knew that you deserved worse than what is even happening and you fall on your face and you're like the publican who struck his chest? Be merciful because I don't deserve it. Be merciful to me because I deserve worse than I even have. That's what Ezra is saying. What can I say? We deserve far worse than what we could even expect to happen as a result of this. He's freed us, but we went back. He reflects even more. Look at verse 13. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and our great trespass, seeing that our God hath punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hath given us such deliverance as this, verse 14, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? God, you've been so good to us. How can we do this to go back to, to live in our sins and now in our sins in a position where God is, is, is going to remove His hand and we're on a path to destruction. And with all of that, with all of that, we wonder, and we ought to wonder, is there any hope? By the way, you're not even ready to be in a position where not just you can be revived, but where, where we can, you know, where we can identify with the spirit that is absolutely necessary here to embrace the, the reality of our sins, the seriousness of our sins, and uh, the truth of the judgment and the, the wrath that's associated to the path that we would be on because of our sins we would be tremendously wise to embrace that as Ezra did. The question would be this, in the midst of that, after we understand the seriousness of our sins, we, we would need to ask this next question, is there hope for mercy? So Ezra completed, by the way, everything that we've said up until now, Ezra's praying, but that's like a prayer sermon. I mean, that's a prayer sermon. And Israel is hearing this. So look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now when Ezra had prayed, that was the prayer sermon we just heard. And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, what happened next? There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women. 
and they wept. Here's what, it, here's what it means. It means that Ezra is in prayer, but he's preaching a sermon to a congregation of Israel who are in their sins. And here's what he said. We have went away from God. We're on the right, wrong path. God's going to remove his hand and we deserve judgment. And listen, we, we have no excuse for what we've done. And at the end of that sermon, we have Israel who heard it and they're going to respond And Shechaniah stood up as the representative of Israel. Look at verse 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God. So one of the nation of Israel, one of the spokespersons speaking for Israel, after hearing this sermon, he here's what he said. Ezra, you said we've trespassed. Ezra, here's what we say. We have trespassed. We sinned. So he acknowledged the sins. Then he goes on in verse number 2 of chapter 10, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Look what, look what Shechaniah acknowledged though. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. So even in the midst of the sin and the consequence of the sin and the judgment that's coming because of the sin, Shechaniah said, yet now there is hope. He saw hope. He saw, he understood that God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. And if we seek Him, even in this instance, when God was so good to us and we went back to our sins, even in this instance, if we seek Him with a humble heart, perhaps we'll find mercy and grace again. He goes on in verse 3. Now therefore let us make a covenant. Ooh, I love that word covenant. The word covenant means promise. The word covenant is based on the work of God in us. When you know what God wants you to do, then you have a foundation to build that covenant on. So he says, let's make a covenant with our God. Two, and I love these next two words, put away. By the way, you could probably just circle those two words. Put away all of the wives and such as were born of them. So, the hope that Shechaniah saw was the mercy and the grace of God uh, that they had experienced in the past that perhaps if they would through covenant would put away their sins that maybe they would find God's mercy again. Even with the seriousness of this the actions of Israel in faith, they saw hope. Perhaps the fiery wrath of God would be turned. Look at verse 14. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at the appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof, note this, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. So Israel saw, Ezra saw the seriousness of the sins, and he rent his mantle, and he delivered the message. Shechaniah and the nation, the congregation of Israel heard the message and they embraced the seriousness of the sins and said, we have sinned. And we deserve the consequences of our sins. And I, I, I make no excuses for that. But yet there's hope that perhaps we'll find mercy again if we make a covenant and we turn away. Then it could be that the fierce wrath of God would be turned away from us. You and I would be wise to acknowledge the seriousness of our sins. I'm going to say that this particular issue is a serious problem for people, for Christ, often for Christians today, to acknowledge the seriousness of our sins. That our sins will remove the hand of God from us and put us in a place of Judgment on the path of judgment. We would be wise to acknowledge that. Good thing I don't have any sins in my life. Be careful. 
Grant is my second. He's 14 years old. When he was six weeks old, he had RSV and bronchiolitis. We lived in Missouri, and it was in the middle of winter, and it was very cold. And so he had respiratory issues. And when you mix bronchiolitis with RSV, it's a very serious combination of health issues. So we, he didn't sleep at nights, and he had trouble breathing. Now, if you're a mom or a dad, and you're looking at your six-week-year-old six-week-old baby in, you know, the, in the crib, and he's struggling to get oxygen, it's a terrifying thing to see. And so after him struggling for so long, hours and hours, really a, a couple of days with this, and trying to help him and, and trying to give him, you know, a, a good atmosphere. We would even be in the bathroom with the hot water on and get that mist and, and try to help his breathing. But then he started to turn purple. And we, we knew this is serious. We got to get him to the hospital. So we rushed him to the ER in St. Joseph. When we got there, he was, as I mentioned, he began to turn colors to purple, to blue and purple. And they, I, I'll never forget the scene of Grant being in this emergency room on this bed that's for an adult, and there's a six-week baby in there strapped onto this bed, and there was about there was about six doctors and several nurses in and out of this room. His oxygen level was right at about 60, and it was going down. And the doctor finally came out and said, there's nothing we can do to help him. We've got to get him life-flighted to Kansas City Children's Mercy. Uh, Melissa and I said, let's do it like now. Let's get him. Let's go. So the process began. The helicopter was already there. And they started to prep him for this life flight from where we were to the hospital in Kansas City. It was about a 45-minute helicopter flight or rather a 15-minute helicopter flight from where we were to Kansas City. But there's one thing Melissa and I didn't know, and it was that we, we couldn't ride in the helicopter. So we watched our baby get into this helicopter and take off, and then we got in our car, and we had a 45-minute drive. Actually, it was about an hour drive, but I made it in 45 minutes. The Lord's grace was there. <laughs> All the time between where we were and where we were going, we didn't know if our child would be alive when we got to the hospital. So the whole time between where we were and where we were going, we were lifting our hands and we were crying out to God and we were praying and we were confessing and we were doing whatever it was that needed to be done so that we could be sure that our heart was right with God. And in the process of all of that, we had to come to the conclusion that we needed to put Him in the hands of God. Grant's condition was serious. His health condition was serious. His sickness was serious. It was life-threatening. That's how our sins are. The problem is, is we don't see it that way. And so what we do is we get out of church, and church then becomes something if it works out. When God says you need to be in church, He clearly says that. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Now we can take that and try to make it mean something else, but it ultimately means what it means. When we're having church, we need to be here. We don't need to be sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching our favorite TV, TV show. We need to be in God's house. Oh, you know, this isn't very serious. No, 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 no. You're missing it. Ezra ripped his clothes because he understood how serious it was. We're talking about sins. If you forsake God and His house, you're, you're in sin. If you look at pornography, you're in sin. Oh, you know, it's not a big deal. No, 
you don't understand that it is a big deal. It will destroy you. It will put you on a path of destruction. It will take God's hand off of you. It's serious. If you drink beverage alcohol, you're in sin. And we need to see it as as it is. It's a sin. We can try to minimize it. We can try to explain it away. The Scripture is clear about this. And so to engage in this activity is to be in sin. And it's a serious thing. To gamble your money and your possessions is a sin. To listen to worldly music is a sin. Oh, you know, it's my favorite, it's my favorite band or it's my favorite whatever. Listen, you can, you can do whatever you want to to try to explain how it's okay, but it's not okay. It's a sin. And what we need, what we would be wise to do is like Ezra did and like the nation of Israel through the spokesman Shechaniah did is to acknowledge we have sinned. This is a sin and this is a serious thing. To watch ungodly movies is a sin. Now, I'm not getting a lot of amens. I didn't expect it, but, but it doesn't change the truthfulness of this. Ungodly movies to, in, to embrace and to, to watch Ungodly movies, it affects the way you think. By the way, all of these things ultimately affect the way we think. Here's what will happen. You'll eventually start to turn purple and blue. Why? Because you're sick. And you're in danger. We need God to revive us. We need God to change us. We need to, we would be wise to acknowledge when we have sin in our life, but oh, how quickly we go back to it. You should never forget your sins are very serious and they will destroy you. Years ago, there was a young man that we took to camp with us and he was that, he was that young man that, um, he was like the bad kid in the youth group. You know, I was a youth pastor, and so we had a various, all kinds of, you know, kids that we ministered to. And this was the kid. So when he, <laughs> when he said, hey, I'm going to camp, you're like, oh, man. I mean, you did that on the inside, you know. Because you know he's going to bring stuff he shouldn't bring. He's going to be a problem. His attitude isn't going to be right. And, you know, and so he came to camp, and that's how it was. I had to confiscate a bunch of stuff. He, he was, you know, a problem. His attitude wasn't good. It was just like a constant fight uh, between him and me. Then on Wednesday night, at the end of the service, after the preaching on Wednesday night, he, he came to me and he said, Brother Ben, I surrendered to be a pastor tonight. I said, what? I mean, amen. <laughs> I mean, I was like, what? You know, I did not see that one coming. And you know, he really got it. A kid like that, he knows what's happening in the youth group with the other kids. So he started calling out the other kids in the youth group. Maybe not in front of everybody, but he would go to them and he'd say, you know, really, you shouldn't be doing this. And all the it was from Wednesday all the way to the end, that was like one of the best camp weeks we had. And God really got, he was on fire and he was being used. So when we got back home, he... God wanted him to be a pastor. So he started to wear a tie to church and he started uh, wanting to learn how to de develop messages. He had a good spirit and he did a message in youth class, a five minute sermon, uh, you know, one time. And so, I mean, it's the fire is continuing and he's doing well. But then in the process of weeks and months, this young man, Sean was his name, began to go back to some of his old things hang out with some of the old influences he had in his life. So one Sunday, he wouldn't wear the tie. So that he then wasn't wearing a tie any Sunday. And it's not as though that is a dress standard. If you want to come to church, you better have a tie. He just did that because he wanted to learn how to be a pastor. And, but then he, he, he wasn't wearing the tie. 
And then he wasn't giving attention as he was. He wasn't listening as much as he was. And I could tell this isn't, he's not going in the right direction. So we would talk about it. I would try to encourage him. A year of this goes by and he's continuing to slide back into his old ways. So that it's the next year for camp. And he's further away than he was the year before. And I said to him, Sean, you have to go to camp. He said, I don't want to go to camp. I said, I will pay your way. I want you to go to camp. I will pay for it. After some negotiating, he finally said, I'll go to camp, but I'm not going to let you pay my way. I'll pay my own way. So I'm excited. I'm thinking, you know, I got him. He's going to come to camp and he's going to hear the preaching. And it could be that God's going to stir him again and he's going to be excited and he's going to get things right. And it's just going to be great again. And so we're at camp and the preaching's happening and he's asleep. Every sermon, he's sleeping or pretending to sleep through every message. And he did that every day for the whole camp week, so that it was the last sermon of camp. The next day we're leaving. And we get to the end of the message of the last sermon. And I leaned over to him and I said, Sean, would you go to the altar and pray with me? He said, okay. We came to the altar during invitation of camp that that week. And I knelt down with him and I said, Sean, did God call you to be a pastor? He said, yes. Now, when he said yes, I thought, well, that's good. He acknowledged that God called him to be a pastor. Maybe, usually if somebody gets away from God, they'll say, you know, God never called me to be a pastor. He didn't say that. Yeah, God called me to be a pastor. So I got a little encouraged in that moment. But then I asked him this. I said, are you going to do it? He said, nope. He knew what God wanted him to do. He decided, I'm not going to do it. What do I say to him? The only thing I could say to him, Sean, you're going to have a hard life. The way of the transgressor is, I said, you're going to have a hard life. And that was the end of it. And from that moment to today, you know what Sean has had precisely? He's had a hard life. The only reason we would know what God wants us to do, know that we're in sins, and still not make a big deal about it. Eh, I don't need to get this right. Eh, this, is, this isn't that serious, you know? This isn't that serious is because you don't understand the consequences associated to a path where God's hand is off of you. It's because you don't understand, you don't understand the consequences of a life, the path that living in sins will put you on. Because, here's the truth, this is the truth about it. If you understood how serious our, if we understood how serious our sins were, we would rent our clothes. We would fall on our face and stretch our arms out and say, God, I deserve no mercy. I deserve consequences for this. But yet there's hope. You might have sins in your life. And I named some, but like we understand, that's that list of sins that's not exhaustive. When God reveals sin in our life, we would be wise to take it seriously. We would be wise to, to lay ourselves out to God. We would be wise to say, God, would you reveal your mercy to me? I don't deserve it. And then, watch, covenant. Covenant. God, I'm going to put away my sins. I'm going to put it away. Israel said, I'll put away my sins. And then verse 14, look at it one more time and we'll be done. Verse 14, the last phrase. 
until the fiery wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. <clears throat> we need to remember that there's hope. We need to remember to take our sins seriously. We need to decide to turn back and to confess. We need to decide to put away our sins. I really think it all sort of starts right there with us saying, like Shechaniah said, I have sinned. I have sinned. You know what's amazing about this? Because all we've done is went through the book of Ezra and we finished it tonight. But all leading up to chapter 8, you know what God gave Israel? He gave them revival. And then after they got revival, they had sin. We had revival. Let's not think that just because we've had revival or perhaps we've been revived, that sin doesn't creep back in. We need to confess. We need to confess. We need to take our sins seriously because they are serious. Let God convict you. Don't say, oh, you know, this isn't a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Father, tonight we're grateful for the encouragement of the Word. Lord, this is serious tonight, but we've tried to just say what you said. We tried to bring an encouragement that would, that would be accurate according to what we've studied in your Word tonight. And it is, it is so obvious that sins embracing the sinfulness of the abominations of this world. And you convict us and you speak to us and we know that it's sin not because the pastor said, but because you touched us. I pray that tonight we would spread our arms out to you and to say, God, I have sinned. And I desire tonight your mercy and I commit myself to put away my sin I pray for your help to make this decision tonight. Maybe there's somebody who needs to be saved and they're like me in that story when I knew I was destined for hell and I understood that I deserved it and I wanted to be saved. Maybe somebody needs to be saved tonight. Would you bring that conviction to them? Every head's bowed, nobody's looking. Would you lift your hand if you would say, uh, Preacher, tonight, I don't know.